2: Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. And uh, this is early May 2021. And if you think back quickly, 51 years to May 4th, 1970, if we think of Kent State. I was at Kent State at the time. And that tells you how old I am. Uh, for anyone who is at least 19 years old, at that time, is now 70 years old, and uh, hopefully going strong. But uh, a lot has happened between 1970 and 2021. And uh, at Kent State, uh, we're going to be talking to uh, Neil Cooper. Neil is the director of the uh, School for Peace and Conflict Studies at Kent State. Neil, thank you for joining us. Tell us a little bit about the School of Peace and Conflict, and and how do its origins tie into the May 4th shootings?
0: So actually, uh, the school is uh, celebrating its 50th anniversary this year, Uh, and that's because the the school's predecessor, the uh, Center for Peaceful Change, was actually established by the university 50 years ago this year um, uh, as an attempt to get something positive Uh, uh, out of the events of of May 4th, Uh, it was conceived at the time uh, as a quote-unquote living memorial to the events of May 4th, 1970, and it was um, given a mission to promote peaceful change uh, and learning through experience, and and we try to live up to that mission and, and abide by that mission today The name may have changed, but the commitment to that mission uh, remains central to the work of the school.
2: Um, I I recall going back to May 4, 1970, the uh, war protest, the National Guard on campus, and uh, the idea of having riot control National Guard's people was sort of a novel idea because there was not much training in how to handle large crowds or even to determine what was the harm in having a large crowd? That wasn't destroying things. Uh, and uh, so af- after Kent State, after the shootings, and, and after uh, things were, were set up at Kent State for, to promote peaceful change, the, the thought is, what has anything been actually accomplished in you know, teaching us with a body of academic knowledge or theories how to avoid violence and to allow peaceful change to occur, which I think is part of what the purpose is, is that right?
0: Uh, that's our aim. Um, so we work uh, both locally and internationally. So I have uh, one colleague, for instance, is uh, working lo- locally and involved in a uh, uh, local uh, Jewish-Muslim dialogue. I have other colleagues who work in uh, Colombia, who've worked in Nigeria, in Pakistan, um who work on issues of relationships between Taiwan and China, and so on and so forth so there 's a i think uh, uh, as a as a group um, we are actively involved in trying to translate academic research I- into practical engagement on the ground both locally and ar- and around the world and so those those impact not just our own work but but the work of of peace activists and uh, of mediators and, and conflict resolution practitioners around the world are, are often kind of making uh, micro changes capillary changes if you like that that <clears throat> may go unnoticed below the the big headlines um, so I think that's one one important takeaway there's a lot of work a lot of progress that goes on in, in resolving you know we've learned, a lot in terms of conflict resolution around local community disputes, work within uh, organisations, and right through to the uh, practices of uh, international peacekeeping forces dealing with, with post-conflict settings. Um, so a lot of, lot of that goes unreported. We we focus very much on the on the daily, uh, you know, kind of headlines of, of violence and gun shooting and problems and and, and um, you know, both here in the U.S. and, and further abroad. But underneath those, those headlines, I think that there has been a kind of, you know, there are notable successes that we can celebrate. And beyond that as well, uh, I would say that, you know, I th- i think there is a, a tendency to, to adopt a, a kind of resigned, uh, defeatist attitude the challenge of, of, of bringing about positive political change, right? and, and, and progress and, and, and progress towards peace. Because again, I think we focus on, the, on those deadly, daily headlines that suggest to us that nothing changes. And I, and I, and I call this the kind of you know, miserablest account of, 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 of history. But nothing changes, so there's no point in trying to change anything. And, and you know, we m- might as well all just stay in our beds and, and cover our heads with a blanket. And hope the world goes away um but if you think about it historically there in the, there are there are certainly significant problems and challenges that remain today and i'm very happy to talk to them and, and i think there are some very scary scenarios uh for the future of peace and security and i'm very ha- happy to talk about both but historically you know there are areas where we've seen significant progress if you look you know if you were standing in the rubble of Berlin after the end of the Second World War, the Second World War in particular, that, you know, I don't think anybody would have given great odds for the idea that Western Europe would become a play a region where the idea that, that they no longer go to war with each other is simply just taken for granted. Similarly, if you look at the, you know, relations between the US and Canada, if you go back far enough, uh, you know, the Great, the Great Lakes were an, a, a militarized area, and he took a, a, an early 19th century arms control agreement to actually demilitarize the Great Lakes. Now, nobody thinks about the U.S. and Canada uh, going to war. It's not to say that the U.S. and Canada and the Europeans don't have issues and disputes between themselves, but they now, you know, it's taken for granted that those will get settled uh in the conference room and and not on a on a battlefield likewise you know we, life expectancy rates have massively increased historically uh, slavery's been abolished Ho- even homicide rates I, I, you know uh, this may seem counterintuitive to your listeners because we get this daily drip drip of news about the kind of you know latest homicides all of which are are, are awful and there is clearly still much more work to be done on this issue. But if you look historically over the centuries, homicide rates have plunged since the Middle Ages, Um, and even deaths from war have fallen. And that's partly because one of the things that we've seen since the end of the Second World War is really the end of, uh, of major war, direct major war between the major powers. And we know that one of the things that, that major industrialized powers are really good at is finding really effective ways to engage in mass killing. Uh, so, you know, those are just some of the kind of lists of, of points of progress that we've made, right, to, to a better society, a better life, and even points of progress in terms of peace. As I said, I, there is a, it's a mixed picture out there, and and, I, and there are also the whole series of, 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 of issues and, and trends that are very worrying, And I think the other point that is worth making is that I, I think we are at one of those historical inflection points where, where some of the progress particularly uh, post Cold War that we experienced in peace and conflict trends may potentially be at risk of, 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 of kind of going the other way.
2: You know, as we talk about the evolution of International relations from World War II forward are not going to have major powers likely to be engaged in things other than uh, conference room discussions and resolving individual uh, differences. The uh, the advent uh, of terrorism as a a cheap alternative, a cheap way of delivering violence, how has that come into play?
0: Well, I I don't think terrorism necessarily is a a novel phenomenon. It's it's not a novel phenomenon of the post-Cold War era. Terrorism has always been with us in in different forms and in in different contexts. One of the things I would note is that what I was talking about in terms of the absence of war between the major powers is is that I think that's a historical uh, event that we've seen since the end of the Second World War. I don't think that that's necessarily guaranteed going forward. In terms of terrorism, I mean, if you look at the likes of Al-Qaeda and ISIS, um, I mean, in one, there are lots of kind of, you know, there's never one single explanation for the rise of a, a, any uh, phenomena. They're all always kind of multifactorial uh, explanations. But I think um, in part, you know, you can look at ISIS and Al-Qaeda and, and actually the fact that those kind of actors are re- resorting to terrorism is in part a kind of reflection of their weakness. And, uh, if if they were stronger actors, if they were, uh, um, you know, state-like actors, then uh, they would be de- deploying other other means of violence and other means of thought. So I don't want to uh, diminish um, the threat from those groups, and I certainly don't want to diminish, diminish the consequences of events like 9-11. Uh, but, you know, compared with the kind of military force that major states like the, the U.S. or China or, or Russia can, can deploy. These are relatively I, weak forces.
2: Well, let's sort of hold that thought. We're going to take a short break. We're, we're talking to Mr. Uh, Neil Cooper, who is the director of Kent State School of Peace and Conflict Studies. In uh, this recognizing May 4th, 1970's 51st anniversary, coming up this May 4th. Uh, we'll take a short break. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on The Advocate on WHK. Don't go away, we'll be right back. Welcome back, Cleveland at Phillips. With you, with another segment of the Advocate. We're talking to Mr. Neil Cooper from Kent State University. He's the director of the Kent State University School of Peace and Conflict Studies, and uh, we're talking to him about conflict since the days of May Fourth, 1970, when we had the shootings at Kent State. Uh, Mr. Cooper, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Uh, we're talking about. Uh, the idea of post World War II and resolving conflicts without war. Uh, how are we doing now? Are there any trends that have been recognized, and any concerns we have?
0: So, um, as I was saying before, I think that the good news is that we can identify a number of historical trends that have, that have gone in the right direction. You know, the the, the long term decline in homicide rate life expectancy increases standards of living increases all these kind of things um and even some positive trends on on, on war interstate warfare for instance war between states uh has been in de- decline for since, you know the sort of like mid twentieth century but uh I do think at the same time that we are now has a kind of historical inflection point um where we be, we're beginning to see certain kinds of trends in the international system that are worrying um, so if you look um in 2019 for instance um well whilst interstate conflicts conflicts between states and particularly conflicts between major powers uh, uh i mean the conflict between major powers have, have not ha- occurred since world war ii effectively but but If you look at all kinds of conflicts, uh, including interstate conflicts, civil conflicts, internationalized civil conflicts, in 2019, these reached the highest recorded rate uh, in the post-1946 period, driven in part by a a surging conflict in Africa, which also recorded um, uh, the highest number of conflicts in the post-1946 period. Uh, from 2011 to 2019, the number of riots around the world rose by something like 282%. And perhaps most worryingly uh, at all, uh, we've seen really significant in- increases in both global military expenditure and the global arms trade. So between 1998 and 2019, so it's over, over the period of about 20 years, Global military expenditure has risen over 80% in real terms. Uh, and I think these are really concerning trends. And in particular, I mentioned that I think one of the positives that we've seen since the end of World War II is really the end of, of, of major war between major military industrial powers. And the concern is that this sort of growing accumulation of arms and weapons around the world uh, and the kind of heightened tensions that we now see in, in a, in a new multipolar world, that, that these, the, you know, uh, may, if these, if these trends continue, the concern is that, that, you know, uh, about the risk of the eruption of a major war. Uh, because since the end, of, certainly since the end of the Cold War, uh, Western states have, have, have essentially fought, you know, wars of choice, uh, not existential wars as. the, Survival, where the survival of the nation-state was was at stake. So you know, Afghanistan uh, and Iraq uh, and Libya and all those kind of conflicts, uh, challenging as they they may have been, they were still wars of choice. They were still wars overseas, and and you know, the integrity of the of the American state was never uh, at stake. And I and and uh, and so. The debate about those wars, I think, it, it is very different than uh, it, it is over uh, existential wars. And I, But I do worry that we've almost come to accept that that's the natural state of war, that wars only happen out there overseas uh, in the context of wars of choice, against relatively weak opponents. Uh, you know, and I, I, big, I,
2: I see, as you're explaining this, um, Talking about war, where we talk about war between major powers, yeah, that yeah. that would be something that is extremely rare. We don't see, uh, other than maybe the the border between Pakistan and India, which always seems yeah. to be a tinderbox. Um, yeah. But what we see now with regard to violence, uh, official government violence, is governments uh, taking arms against civilian populations who are protesting, yeah. and and within the civilian populations that are protesting there seems to be a division where you have maybe a large majority of the protesters are nonviolent, but you have an element of those protesters that are keyed in and prepared for and find usefulness in being violent, which escalates things. Now, similar to like a virus, like in India now with the coronavirus spreading, uh, still, if we have a lot of civil disruption going on, a lot of violence, uh, does that lead us into a situation where we might be looking at wider conflicts coming out of these, uh, these countries? I'm thinking of like Miramar, for example. Um, how, how dangerous I th- is that?
0: So I, 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 it, I think it depends on, on the context and the particular, particularities of the particular conflict that you're, you're looking at and you're talking about. Um, mm-hmm. I think some conflicts uh, are, are, are containable, within a country or even within a, uh, a particular uh, region of the country. One of the re- other reasons why we've seen sort of, you know, declines in, in mortality rates from war, for instance, is, is that a lot of civil wars don't actually um, encompass the whole of the country. They may be kind of located just in a, in another, you know, one bit of the country and other bits of the country are actually Doing quite well and, and generate and, and, and benefiting from improvements in healthcare and stuff like that. So you often get the odd uh, statistical anomaly whereby there's a kind of civil conflict going on in one bit of the country, but uh, but overall it can be that, that actually life expectancy rates, for instance, may be going up overall. Um, so it, I, it depends on the on the situation, on the context. Clearly, we've seen. In Iraq and Syria, the way that that certain kinds of conflicts can easily become internationalized um, you know and and that that kind of conflict is now becoming a not uncommon feature of the of the international system, particularly in a in a multipolar world where you've got different you know major powers with diff- with different interests uh, and different alliances in different regions of the world kind of getting involved, which mm-hmm, is what we saw mm-hmm. precisely in Syria.
2: Well, you, you mentioned alliances, and what, what comes to mind are mutual defense treaties. Are, are they a thing of the past? Um, because of commitments no, no, no. in those international treaties, uh, you could be forced into an international conflict uh, amongst a number of international powers.
0: Yeah, um, I, I certainly don't think they're a, a thing of the past. If you look at the debates there's the... Um, uh, a NATO summit meeting that, that's going to occur over the summer, and I suspect that, that the Biden administration will reiterate, you know, America's commitment to NATO and the importance and, and centrality of, of NATO uh, to U.S. Uh, security planning. So I think that, that those, those broader alliance relationships will certainly be uh, a feature of the international system going forward. But I think as well, you know, though those different kinds of alliance relationships also create their own sets of security dynamics. So if you look, you know, I mean, if you look at NATO, for instance, collectively, NATO states themselves account for about over, over half, over 50% of global military expenditure. Um, whereas the Russians account for about, you know, uh, 3.4% of global military expenditure and the Chinese about 14%. So I think one of the things we need to do when we look at our alliance arrangement is think about the importance of those relationships and the common values and principles that on, on, underpin them. Right? And that's the one of the key things with the NATO uh, alliance in particular. It's not underpinned by a, 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 a particular set of political values uh, and, and principles that have been there Uh, right from the inception of NATO. But on the other side of the scale, it's also important that when we are talking about the potential threat from countries like Russia and China, we also have to take into account how those kind of alliance arrangements look from Beijing and, and from Moscow. It's only by being able to put ourselves in the shoes of others and to see how our own uh defensive actions, what we see as defensive actions, how they might actually be feed to feed by others. And if we can do that, then that helps us to actually take effective measures to limit international tensions very, oh, very, 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 for the next well, I'd so re-
2: like, like to thank you, Mr. Neil Cooper from Kent State University and the School of Peace and Conflict Studies. Thank you for your work and hopefully the trends of more peace will continue to grow. And so, thank, thank you, you for, uh, for joining us. Thank you, and uh, we'll be right back. We're going to take a short break. Don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The, the Advocate. Advocate. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. Uh, We're talking about Kent State and May 4th, being the 51st anniversary since the May 4th shootings at Kent State. And uh, at at that time, it was such a shock to have such violence in such a, a situation. Things have changed, and then in ways things have not changed, between 1970 and 2021. Uh, with us as a returning guest, we have Mr. and Professor John Kersey from Tihauga Community College. John, thank you for, for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me, Nick.
2: My, my pleasure. Uh, for those of you who haven't heard John before, he's an expert in communications, social media, and what the motivations are for the various things we're seeing, uh, in our society today. So John, uh, what, what was going on with Kent State? I was there at the time. I was uh, a senior at Kent State in um, 1970, and we were all shocked watching the kind of disruption that uh, protests and violence such as shooting were causing. It seemed to be one of the first times that we had something that dramatic and that serious going on in the country, but uh, akin
1: to the civil rights movement at the time. But, you know, it, uh, it sure. Between, it, it, it sure was. And I was a teen then. And I think what, what I, when I look at what, what's going on with the Black Lives Matter movement and the protest of, say, 2016 and 2020, and even so far this year, I see some similarities in terms of what I'd say big goals for groups. Uh, there was a group at Kent State called SDS, Students for a Democratic Society, and they were at hundreds of college campuses in the late 60s. But at Kent, um, some of the things they wanted to do were abolish the law enforcement school abolish ROTC, abolish the Northeast Ohio Crime Lab. Uh, So here we are in in 2021 and what are Black Lives Matter's goals? Uh, One of them is abolishing all police and prisons. Another was abolishing uh, the nuclear family as we look at it. Another one is kind of abolishing the tax code and replacing it with something they call radical and sustainable redistribution of wealth. And I I think what, what the similarities that I see are what I would call people on the extremes willing to engage in protests, willing to engage in protests that that are violent. And what bothers me, societally speaking, is that their definition of success in these protests isn't what you and I might think about. Uh, There's been a lot of research. I could cite four or five, probably 10 studies that indicate that any time a demonstration or protest turns violent, the public actually has a revulsion against that cause public support declines. And that happened in uh, the late 60s, early 70s, and it's happening again. Uh, My personal belief is that groups such as Black Lives Matter know that fact, and they really don't care about public support anymore in their strategic planning. They're aiming more at raising big dollars and convincing important powers that be about the rightness of their point of view and that's more important to them than anything that happens out on the street, so to speak.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, when, when we talk about protests, we talk about the protest in Kent State in 1970, or we talk about the protest in Washington, D.C. on January 6th of this year. Uh, it, it seems the crowd who participates in these protests are come up of, of two basic varieties. One, the nonviolent people who are there believing that this is a nonviolent protest. With some first amendment rights and meaningfulness behind that versus people who show up with violence in mind prepared for violence and initiate and engage in violence uh, has that not changed between 1970 and 2021
1: that's the same isn't it there were people at can in 1970 who were kind of uh, very intent on on violence there may not have been as many, and they may not have been as well-prepared in 1970 as, as they seem to be in 2020. I think the so they big game-changer... Oh, yeah. Oh, they had the willingness, and things happen, right? I don't believe everybody knows to this day exactly how the ROTC building, for example, it got burned down. Um, the big game-changer, when you think about it, if you want to compare then and now, is social media. Uh, many of the groups, especially the more radical, more violent ones, are a lot more concerned about controlling the social media story to galvanize their supporters and also to try to demonstrate the righteousness of their cause to their funders. Uh, the fastest spreading post on social media in 19, in 2020 was the video of George Floyd's um, arrest and murder in Minneapolis this past uh, May. Uh, social media is kind of like that high-octane fuel that can take a local story and make it national global in minutes irrespective of what the local community thinks about it and that's another big difference i think uh, nick and i'm not minimizing kent state because that was huge we can talk more about that but um derek chauvin derek chauvin's murder of george floyd in in may a year ago in may of 2020 uh, might have been a story only in minneapolis or in Minnesota. if if it had happened, say, 20 years earlier, before the era of social media, before everybody had a a cell phone camera and everybody could take pictures of what was happening. uh, That has really changed not only the way we view protests, but the the strategy and the thinking of the organizations that are behind some of these protest movements. They're aiming to stir the pot on social media, for example.
2: Well, it's certainly available for them in over the past decade or two. Has uh, been fully utilized for that. Now, you and I have talked about this many times before. Uh, the the question of social media and just media in general that uh, it's quite a cafeteria selection out there as to uh, what uh, belief network you want to believe in. So if I want to surround myself with nothing but input that's liberal bent or progressive versus conservative, I can I can choose my poison.
1: Uh, you you so sure that, can. Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. But I was going to talk about echo chambers and filter bubbles, things you and I have chatted about in, in past conversations. Well, that, right? well, that's
2: right. Well, that leads us right into that point. So, yeah, go ahead and uh, yeah. How, how is that working? And what do we see in the future with this?
1: Right. What we see more and more in social media is an interpretation of how events such as protests or shooting are being portrayed. And it's the uh, portrayal, in some instances, that becomes more important than the event itself, or the protest itself, or the shooting itself. Uh, There was um, some rioting in Kenosha, Wisconsin this past summer. I think it was in August. And I won't mention his name, but you could easily find it in the media. Uh, There was a 19-year-old present who, in my opinion, in self-defense, used a legally obtained firearm to shoot and kill another person in that incident. Within an hour of that shooting, there were at least five different versions of videos of that shooting, all circulating on Twitter. Some of them slowed down the action. Some of them highlighted who, and it was more than one person, was carrying weapons in the incident. Uh, And they were all kind of spinning this video to try to advocate for their own cause. And again, at least five that a good friend of mine counted and measured. That's kind of where we are now with these violent protests and with demonstrations and, and with murders. It's less important what happens as how it is explained to the public. Oh, well, and, well, the accurate, you know, Go ahead. I was going to say, and then we get to one of my favorite topics, right? The disinformation. Uh, what we're really seeing more recently is more and more altered or doctored videos actually being disseminated throughout social media was about a month or two ago, a teenager in a gang of Chicago had committed a crime is running away from police. And in the police body camera footage, you can clearly see that the teenager has a, 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 a a pistol. Uh, but there are doctored versions of that going around and the pistol has been removed from those doctored videos. Uh, As people who are just members of the public, like we are, uh, what, what, uh, help do we
2: have and what hope do we have that we can discern between doctored and altered videos and uh authenticated videos because visually when we see something visually that really sort of sticks with our memory
1: and that picture of um may 4th 1970 will always stick with our memory the one that john Philo took of um Mary Vecchio um, cre- screaming on, over the body of Jeff Miller, that that just just like you said, that's like a more than iconic. It's, it's like a transformational video in terms of how people reacted to that. And again, the violent groups know that and they're looking for that. Black Lives Matters believes that the, the George Floyd, Derek Chauvin video is that equivalent in this generation, that that's going to change the way that people think about police and policing and, and so on and so forth. But back to the question, and I think it's a really good one. Uh, the number Let, one let's suggestion hold, let's I have...
2: Hold answer. John, let's hold up on that answer because we're going to take a short break. And uh, we're talking to John Kersey from Cuyahoga Community College. We're talking about uh, basically Kent State and today. What's the difference between Kent State and the protest movement and black... Lives Matter and that movement and what's going on today with our social media. We'll take a short break. We'll be back with John Kersey after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. Don't go away, we'll be right back. I can get no satisfaction. I can get no Welcome back to Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with our final segment of The Advocate for tonight. We're talking about tenth State, May 4th, 1970, and we're also comparing that to what's going on with Black Lives Matter, and that movement in 2021. With us from Tiger County, Cuyahoga Tiger Community College, Professor John Kersey. John, again,
1: as always, thank you for joining us. Thank you. No, before the Nick, break you we would...
2: were talking about, oh, go ahead.
1: Yeah, before the break, you had asked the question, how can us in the general public discern and, and know what we're looking at is true or what it's not? And the number one way to do that is to look at the source of what you're seeing, be it a a video, be it a picture, be it a story. And what I mean by looking at the sources, don't trust your friend on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whatever. Go to the original source for that information. There's a lot to be said for news gathering organizations and their integrity in terms of what they're doing. So I would put more value on, say, the New York Times, which, again, I don't read as much anymore and don't care for as much. I'll put still a lot more value on that than I would for, say, just Jane Doe putting something up on social media saying, look what happened. You know, I think you have to rely on the traditional media a little bit. And again, we realize that hey, I, you might say, I don't want to rely on the New York Times or then go to Fox News or go to some other reputable news outlet, but use that as a guide. And don't just trust what anybody puts up on social media. In fact, I would look at that in a a protest situation or violent situation with a high degree of skepticism because there's a pretty decent chance that they're manipulating the content and they want you to be what's known as an unwitting actor or an unwitting agent that you're willing to basically forward something and pass it along on your social media without checking on it to see if it's uh, factual. And by the way, Nick, you know, when we're talking about some comparisons, um, let me kind of add this too. Our researchers have proven that evil actors from places such as Russia have created fake far left and fake far right accounts to basically fan the flames of dissension in our own country. Uh, a study a few years back from the University of Michigan's Internet Observatory identified dozens of social media accounts that were active in the Black Lives protest of 2016 as all emanating from Russia. So the people who were posting were claiming that they lived in Minnesota or Oregon or Illinois or Ohio, but they actually were all trolls living and working in St. Petersburg, Russia. So we've really got to be on guard against that type of activity.
2: Well, you know, as they say, the only thing certain uh, is change. There will always have change. And the direction we're heading in with regard to uh, protests and the left and the right and social media and so forth uh, seems to be moving in a direction that is not very comforting. Uh, How do you see the trends and how do you see the outcome of where we're heading here?
1: Well, funny thing about the trends and the outcome, Um, the the trend has been... That I say groups like Black Lives Matter have gained a lot of um, support from uh, big big corporations that are willing to give them money. Uh, I think what's happening in the sports and entertainment industry, though, is some of this is backfiring because I think Mm -hmm. the general public, like I said, they kind of are revulsive to these types of things. So for pro sports leagues being very supportive of Black Lives Matter, they're all seeing huge drops in their viewers and in TV ratings. Uh, Look at what's happened with Hollywood and the Academy Awards, for example. They just saw another huge drop in their Oscars ratings. Um, Incidentally, uh, the National Football League is not perceived as being as pro-Black Lives Matter or pro-radical. And it was fascinating that its ratings, they got more people viewing the NFL draft nationally, not just here in Cleveland, but all over the nation, This past Thursday and Friday, then watch the Oscars and watch the NBA finals, um, which, of course, uh, are considered higher quality events. Uh, The Los Angeles Lakers televised games are now routinely being viewed by less than a million people a game. Uh, That's the lowest number that they've had ever since they began televising Lakers basketball games in the 1960s. So the woke social justice movement in sports is actually correlating with a ratings collapse for some of those leagues and some of those sports teams.
2: Well, why is that when people watch sports, what are they looking for and what are they getting when they're dealing with social uh, issues?
1: Yeah. Well, I believe that the NFL's uh, Hall of Fame quarterback, Brent Favre, kind of said it best when he said sports leagues and their players need to understand that people watch sports and they support sports to get away from their problems and from the problems of society. Uh, In general, right, here in Cleveland, we know this, pro sports have have kind of served as a uniting uh, force, a uniting element. Um, Remember what we have, 1.2, 1.3 million people gathering in downtown Cleveland for that parade when the Cavs won the NBA title in 2016? Uh, That's kind of sports at its best. Uh, When people are deprived of that opportunity to kind of get away from that diversion and get away from that um, break from their daily lives is, I think, when they get turned off to sports. Uh, again, on a personal level, I know lots of people that, that were long-time uh, baseball fans, basketball fans, say they're just never going to go to games anymore.
2: Well, it's interesting. Sports uh, is, is so far out there as uh, somewhat of a fantasy reality. It does everyone a break and an opportunity to be unified under at least something that is "quote unquote" fun and uh, sort of a way. Uh, how is that being jeopardized by what's going on now with incorporating the social consciousness uh, in, pretty much in your face all the time in professional sports compared to what we had in the past? Is that a problem,
1: Nick? I think it is, and I think it's kind of part of an even bigger problem, which I'll call the politicalization of everything. And I'm not not referring to sports now, I'm referring to, you know, you you go to church and you're being hit with a political message. You go to a grocery store and you're being hit with a political message. You know, everything seems to be more and more politicized in our culture. And I I, I think, among other things, that's leading to greater divisiveness. I also think it's leading to um, some mental health situations. I I don't think that people in our society really want to be subjected to, you know, political activity 24-7. And uh, one, one side, one side trying to force its way down the other side, and again to roll back to that whole idea of, of Kent State. You know, one of the reasons why the deaths at Kent State and why that became kind of such a transformational moment in our society is that although I think the general public was opposed to protest and, and opposed to what college students were doing on campuses at that time, there was a consensus that came out of there that this more that the war itself was morally wrong. When you get to the point when National Guard members are killing college students in reaction to a protest on a campus, there is this kind of feeling like we've gone too far. You know, um, I don't see that yet in 2020. I don't see either side um, even coming close to acknowledging that maybe it's gone too far.
2: Do do we have, uh, are we forecasting additional conflicts between the right wing groups like the uh, Proud Boys and the left wing groups like Antifa?
1: Uh, Are these groups still really real? Are they really poised for violence? We know Antifa is. Uh, We saw plenty of, uh, how can I say this, physical evidence last year of of groups of people from Antifa uh, packing, preparing, and and doing things. I remember seeing video footage of a specific van that they used that was appearing in five or six or seven different cities all over the country that was equipped with, um, uh, you know, tear gas type stuff and armor type stuff and flash bomb flash grenades and things of that nature that indicate to me that there are some elements in our country that are very desirous of continuing uh, violence. Um, and, and by the way, I, I also want to point this out because I I'm kind of both strategically condemning, but tactically praising uh, something about black lives matter, right? Um, black lives matter was going to have huge protests in 2020. It, it didn't happen the day that they planned it or the month that they planned it, but they were planned and organized. And if you see a chart, you will see that they had more than a thousand protests all over the country in the 15 days following George Floyd's uh, murder. And what George Floyd's murder really was, was kind of like the go signal or the sign. Okay. It's time to ramp the protest up. The people, the money, the support was all in position, ready to go on that. And again, there's loads and loads of evidence of groups of protesters hopping on planes and going from city to city to city to be involved in protesting. And somebody has to be funding that type of organized activity.
2: Well, they certainly are, and it's certainly something that we're going to be living with for some time. But uh, John Kersey, thank you so much for joining us tonight. We're we're talking about the reality of the the media, the politics, and the impact on our lives and what we should be doing about it. Looking back to May 4th uh, of 1970, where those 51 years for some of us have gone by very quickly, and we've learned a lot, yet uh, things haven't changed quite a bit either. So, John, thank you for joining us tonight. We'll have you on again as we're constantly muddling through our society. Thank you, Nick. Thank you so very much. And thank you for listening tonight. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a great, healthy, and safe week. Good night. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset. Sat and drank my fresh mint tea. With nothing to do until morning. And only my mind.